0: This is session 10 of Technology-Enabled Blitzscaling, a Stanford University class taught by Reid
1: Hoffman, John Lilly, Alan Blue, and Chris Ye. This class features Reed Hoffman interviewing Selena Tobacawala, the president and CTO
0: of SurveyMonkey and the co-founder of Evite. This podcast has been produced by Greylock Partners. For more podcasts, class notes, slides, and videos, please visit Greylock.com. Selena uh, was co-founder of a site called Evite, which those of us who are a little older probably perfectly remember. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, And then uh, helped uh, grow um, uh, Ticketmaster CitySearch and and has been a fundamental uh, agent of SurveyMonkey, which is very well known within the Silicon Valley community as being one of the interesting unicorns. And not as much generally, other than most people have taken a survey, have exposed the survey <laughs> or not. And so we thought there were a bunch of different things that were interesting about the, uh, both Selena and the Survey Monkey story. So we thought this would be a perfect time for kind of the, this village inflection set of choices. Because uh, one of the things that happens is when you actually think about uh, like these things that are articulated ru- as rules in Silicon Valley, actually most of these things are patterns. Most of these things are heuristics. And actually, in fact... Uh, sometimes that specific break of the pattern, that specific break of the heuristic is the thing that actually in fact makes uh, an opportunity for a unicorn company, right? And so uh, and so that was one of the things that we, when we were conspiring and so why don't we kick it off with uh, tell us about like how SurveyMonkey this was before your time was founded what they. What the early story of SurveyMonkey is.
1: So, SurveyMonkey has a pretty interesting and unique startup story in the sense that it was one guy, his name was Ryan Finley, and he worked at a radio station and the radio station said to him, hey, we want to get feedback from our listeners, and he thought, oh wait, I can do this. And he learned to code and he built out the survey for the listeners. And as he did that, he realized that there was this opportunity beyond just the single use case. And so he built SurveyMonkey on the side while he still worked at the radio station. And eventually, it obviously started. But right away, sorry, one of the interesting things is right away, it was a freemium-based business. Before the word freemium was actually existed, and if you think about it, it was 1999. It was probably, he was one of the earliest, if not the earliest models of build a product for free, and then let people upgrade for paying features. And that is how he started from day one. Um, And eventually this product started making enough money, and he had what he called the email bankruptcy, where all these customers were emailing him, and he looked at all the customer support. He couldn't answer everything, and he turned around and he deleted his inbox and called his brother and said, hey, can you come help me with my company? (laughs) So that was his second hire, which was about four years into it. Um, And then he decided that Wisconsin was cold. And so he, at that point, said, I want to move to somewhere warmer. Sight unseen decided on Portland, Oregon. Um, And so part of this interesting part of this story is what he actually did was put a message that said, my sight is down. And this is 2005, so this is very unusual for a web company that's already pulling in, frankly, millions of dollars, and, set, and put the servers on a truck and flew himself. <laughs> and then physically chased down the truck because it was going to the wrong address on the other side in Portland, got the servers back, put them back up, without realizing that he had, like his whole business was essentially going to be on the line. Um, and there in Portland, hired two more developers um, and about 10 more customer support people. And so fast forward to 2000 and end of 2008. And he looked at this business, which, you know, in, in you know, Reed's um, terminology here, was acting, you know, in the sense of size-wise was a tribe, but revenue size was already a village. And he knew he had reached a point where he had no idea. How to take the company to the next level, and for a founder to have that much like presence of himself is just phenomenal in my mind. And so he said, <laughs> he basically um, hired a, essentially a banker to help him say, look, you know, I want to essentially get some liquidity for myself, and most importantly, I want to bring in a professional CEO. And that is just such an unusual thing to do. And so in April 2009, um, two private equity firms. So it was too big for venture capital. It was already like the amount of money needed to buy Ryan and his brother out or to buy a portion of them out was already too big. And so, you know, this, Ryan is truly amazing and, um, and is one of the most, is an extremely humble guy. And one of the things that he was looking for was a professional CEO that held that same culture and ethos. Um, and so... He, um, Spectrum Equity and Bain um, Capital invested and brought on a gentleman named Dave Goldberg, who um, I think as many of you, many of you probably know passed unfortunately in May of this year, but was just had that same culture and ethos of just being somebody who. Um, you know, was extremely intelligent and extremely humble. And that is something that I, you know, both Ryan and Dave shared. Um, So, but he realized it was time to bring on a professional CEO and did that, which is pretty interesting for for Silicon Valley.
0: (laughs) And this is essentially where I started this, because obviously Goldie and I were talking about this, and Goldie was saying what he was going to do. And I was like, oh, really? Like, Portland? (laughs) Like, (laughs) how is this going to work? And, you know, all these sorts of things. And so um, now let's get to how you got to this. So, Goldie calls you, or you connect. Yeah. How does that, and, and what does the company look like?
1: Right. Then? So, um, so I was actually working in London, um, running European product and technology for Ticketmaster. So, um, was we were in about 11 different markets. I was having, frankly, the time of my life. I had done Stanford in Berlin when I was here, and always wanted to go back to Europe. So, <laughs> um, so I had this opportunity to move to London and work in all these different markets. Um, but, um, I don't see that many women in the room. But for the women in the room, I decided I wanted to start a family, and I was traveling about sixty to seventy percent of the time. And so I knew I wanted to take a job where I wasn't traveling as much. Um, and so, and I was ready for the innovation of Silicon Valley again. Um, and I um, ran into Xander, who's our chairman of our board, um, and he introduced me to Dave. And when Dave first called me, and this is true of every single person at SurveyMonkey, when Dave first called us, we were we thought surveys? Like, are you kidding me? Surveys? But when you start to understand the impact of collecting feedback, whether that's this classroom feedback, hopefully, whether it's employee feedback, patient satisfaction, um, you start understanding the power of listening to voices and what you can do with that data. And and the thing that was amazing about Dave was he had that vision in 2009. He had that vision, and that's the same thing that Ryan saw, was how do you take a vision of a company that has been going for 10 years— but realize you have a business of essentially data collection. I mean, you're all computer scientists, right? You, can, you know you can build a forum pretty quickly. But how do you take a business, that, though, that has tremendous scale, think about how to both make it global, but how to build additional value? So how do you build insights and not just data? And how do you think about providing value back to the customer on that feedback? And Dave had that vision, right, from 2009. and I just couldn't have been more excited about it.
0: How big was the company when you joined?
1: So it was 19, um, this was, I finally joined in October of 2009. There were 19 people. There was um, three engineers, and that's it. Um, the company was already had <laughs> millions of users, tens of millions, and you know, we don't disclose the exact amount, but tens of millions of revenue. Your um, revenue
0: per employee wasn't bad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and the margin was unbelievable, if you think about that. Um, and there were three engineers. There was one, we had, uh, David hired one tech ops person when he realized there was literally no backup of the database. <laughs> and, um, And yeah, and so it was very small. Um, And Dave started bringing in essentially various executives. uh, Tim Malley, who's our CFO, he brought him in coming from Google. He had brought in someone to help on International. He had brought me in. So he brought various sort of executives in, knowing that the business was this unique combination of a small company in, in people size and a scaled company, a somewhat scaled company already. In, I mean, not LinkedIn scale, but somewhat scaled in terms of in revenues and traffic.
0: So what was the initial plan? Like, what was the, you, you get to a tribe <laughs> with, with village revenue that you have to build to a village. What was your initial, like, oh my gosh, there's so many things to do right. here. How did you triage?
1: So the first big thing was the platform. So I'm CS Stanford, so kind of came in on the technology side. And it was this monolithic .NET platform with, literally, you know, HTML from the database to the app layer to the front end. Like, it was sort of sprinkled everywhere. And and these guys had done though a fantastic job. If you think about the fact that two people had really, two to three people had really built this application that scaled, but it scaled from a traffic perspective, but not an adding developer perspective. Mm. Um, so the big thing that I had to figure out is how were we going to start taking advantage of all this business opportunity, but at the same time we had a platform that we couldn't use mm. um, from a scale perspective. So. That was the first big decision, and the the, the decision I made was to um, split rather than say we're going to like you know take a bunch of developers, put them in Fiji, and go replicate the site in a different language. We decided to take you know fun- area of the site by area of the site, um, and think about. Um, what are the most important things to do first? And the first thing we decided was that, given the fact that the business is viral, and it's not necessarily like directly viral like Facebook, but it's or LinkedIn, but it's viral in the sense of the fact that that so, that there had been no marketing. Not a penny of search engine marketing had been spent. When we asked Ryan what marketing he did, he said, "Well, I put a gorilla suit on and I stood in the back of the Today Show." He wasn't on the Today Show. He was, like, in the crowd waving. <laughs> that was, like, what he told us was the marketing he'd done. So there had be been no—
0: Literally guerrilla marketing.
1: Literally, literally, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so he had done, like, basically— So there's, you know, you wanted to drive search, but you knew there was this viral component of the mm-hmm. business. And so the earlier we could start that virality and more markets— mm-hmm. Um, the better long term we would be. So the first thing we decided we want to do is quickly globalize the platform. So we were able to use a third-party proxy that did some of the translation to try to quickly within six months get out the door about um, five to ten languages. And the main thing we actually needed to write, rewrite was the billing system. And the billings first, the billing system was basically had, if you change the price, it would change for even existing customers. I mean, everything had been, I mean, it was pretty hard-coded. And so we rebuilt the billing system with 28 different currencies, a bunch of ability to add different packages, different payment methods internationally, which is all very important to let people to let to just enable people to buy your product. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of our first thing and then we've gone area by area, survey creation, survey analytics. Before we go through all yeah.
0: that. So you had three engineers. Yes. That was <laughs> You had yes. a hard coded system. Yes, <laughs> right. That had proven product market fit and revenue. Yes. Okay, you say oh, okay. What's the what are the first three hires I make? What are like, what, what,
1: what? <laughs> so the 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 that's a great question. And the very first hire I actually made was a user experience designer, because our product when we did so I sat there and ran through usertesting.com and watched five videos. And the first thing I realized is there was so much, you know, quote unquote, low hanging fruit of how people were getting through the experience and learning about the experience. And I thought if I could fix some of these things quickly on the current platform and, and already kind of take a tick up in the business growth. Mm-hmm. It would give me some air cover to start rebuilding the technology platform. So that was the very first hire I made. It was mm-hmm. a gentleman from LinkedIn. <laughs>
0: um, yes. I remember that on the other side, yes. <laughs> that wasn't a code to talk
1: about Brad, but yes. But he's a you know, yes. fantastic yes. user experience designer. And then the second one was a head of engineering <laughs> um, I ha- uh, who... Um, uh, Head of engineering who was also from LinkedIn.
0: Oh, <laughs> I remember that too. This really wasn't code for that, but keep going. <laughs> um, was for, um, oh, wait, this is part of how Silicon Valley operates. Right. Because right. people actually. <laughs> try the book that Chris and I offered on the Alliance is actually people do tours of duty. They work one place and another place that is actually in fact, the way it operates.
1: And you take, and you take companies that are awesome and amazing and doing well. And you try to say, I mean, those are the companies that as smaller companies you look up to, and you're thinking about how do we take some of the, some of that talent, um, but I hired a director of engineering, and her first job was to figure out what language we should use. Mm. Um, because we knew we needed to rebuild the platform. We were building the team in Silicon Valley, and we knew that there was not a good community for .NET. Um, we, and so we looked at Python, Ruby, and Java, and we made a decision on Python. And what, what
0: made you uh, make the decision on Python?
1: So I looked at three factors. I had like, this deep spreadsheet. The first was hiring was well, who can we hire and what are the communities available? Mm-hmm. The second was um, what is the scale? So we looked at other companies that were using different languages at the time and like how people had scaled with those languages. Um, and then the third was around... Um, was around the just comparables. So like what, uh, because again, and that really kind of goes back to hiring and scale, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but it is really kind of, kind of focused on, on those different things because those are going to end up being the factors that matter, both scale of the tech platform, but also how can you have a scale development team? Yep.
0: And uh, did you have a target for how many engineers you'd have within 12 months?
1: Um, that I don't remember um, because I was also four and a half months pregnant ah, when I mm-hmm. started. <laughs> and so I was also it's little, going on maternity leave yes. in, in March. But, um, but, um, but yeah, no, I don't remember the exact target, but we were just hiring as quickly as we could. I think we ended up with about eight or 10 at the end of that first year from an engineering perspective, a couple products and a couple UX.
0: And then how much, I mean, Global obviously played a significant role for billing and currencies. How much was the thought of, okay, now uh, part of, of, of beginning to prep for really massive scale was kind of the global scope key?
1: Yeah, so in terms of, you know, again, we were really focused globally from the from the of get the platform ready. Um and not necessarily, you know, we weren't putting people locally yet. We weren't putting any footprint locally yet. It was get the platform and start that viral engine. And so mm-hmm. that was really our focus from a global perspective was launch the different languages. And you do see an uptick when you launch mm-hmm. different languages. Um, and start, and then the the second piece of it is giving them that ability to pay. So that was really our only initial global strategy.
0: Got it. And how about any pattern differences on virality?
1: Uh, globally,
0: mm-hmm.
1: absolutely. Okay. Um, there's a huge difference both in terms of virality um, globally, and that is based on um, where that. number of years into how much that brand has been in market, right? Because when you're depending upon a viral funnel, you're very much depending upon the fact that that customer has awareness of the brand. And so you start seeing impact when people have received their second, third, fourth, fifth surveys. um, And then you start getting more of the the viral funnel going. And that was actually true at Evite as well. At Evite, you you had an average of 18 invitees to one user, but you needed to receive a certain number of Evites before what you then created. And so when you're thinking about those viral models, you have to think about there's like the the primary step viral models and then these secondary step viral models.
0: And and how many uh, like different cohorts were you tracking and how many, <laughs> like what's the, the 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 rough size of AB testing?
1: Yeah, so that was the that's a great point. That was the other thing we did right away was we we launched AB testing. It was fascinating to realize that You know, Ryan had such good just product instinct, but he had grown all by instinct. Mm. Um, He hadn't done a single A/B test, Um, and so we added in just right away an A/B testing very simple, like A/B testing homepage, the end page, which is the page when you finish taking the survey. Um, Start testing. You know, do you want a checkout flow that's three pages versus five pages? How do you want to show your pricing page Um, and just your experience? And we just started heavily, heavily A/B testing and. If you haven't A-B tested before and you're at that scale, and there will be a scale you hit where you can start um, because you know it's easy to get statistical significance. If a, if a test takes more than like two or three months, it's just hard to really get any motion behind it. Um, but once you get to that point, then there are so many easy wins you can have because you suddenly have that traffic to start seeing user behavior.
0: We um, did something. Uh, our first hack on this within LinkedIn was... Uh, we actually set up a, a, a simple A-B testing infrastructure that essentially was on a mod 10. So you could, yeah. Do, yeah, so you could do up to 10 different uh, cell variants. <laughs> you could do two. At Evite, we <laughs> yeah. did
1: like user, uh, odd or even user IDs. Yes. <laughs> yep,
0: that would be another. Although you have to get a certain amount of volume. To get, yes, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. uh, Evite was actually one of the very, uh, that PayPal and Six Degrees and a few others, the very first virality, the actual mm-hmm. ones really deploying virality. Um, So then one of the other pieces of the thesis in terms of of getting ready for blitzscaling is when you begin to do this kind of metrization, what did that mean for dashboards? What did that mean for analytics? What did that mean for data?
1: So (laughs) um, there were no analytics before Mm. 2009. Like there was a daily cash report and that was it. Mm. Um, And so um, as far as understanding and first establishing what were the key metrics Mm. that we actually wanted to establish? And I strongly believe like... You as a whole company can't get initially behind more than three to five, and then there's the drivers underneath it. So the very first thing we had to do is actually put the data into a a data warehouse and actually start looking at the data. Um, But then we started having to build all the dashboards globally. So we have, you know, you have an activity dashboard, which is what people are doing. Your metrics dashboard in terms of your subscriber counts. Um, But we have different dashboards, um, and everything sort of gets, you know, multiplied by the number of countries. Um, so there's more to watch. But for a subscription-based business, which is probably the same as LinkedIn, you know the key metrics are the number of free users, your free users that become paying users. But the, for us, the other main key metric is engagement. So how many users actually deploy their survey, um, how many responses they get, and then, of course, how many users stay with you. So what's your turn rate? Yeah.
0: So let's uh, turn a little bit back to hiring. So the first yes. couple of hires were... Uh, let's go raid a another <laughs> another company. Um, the uh, and then after that, what was the what was the plan?
1: So for on the engineering side, because we had chosen Python,
0: oh, I did I did not promise to make you blush,
1: <laughs> um, because we were doing Python. We did a lot of you know we went to meetups, mm-hmm. we went to um, we hired. Our first Stanford intern, who now runs all of our mobile. Um, so we came to Stanford and did a bunch of recruiting here, um, and um, we did yeah, we did um, PyCon meetups um, and tried to get a lot of people in the Python community from mm-hmm. the engineering side. But it, you know, you hire also just a traditional recruiter mm-hmm. who is out there on LinkedIn and trying mm-hmm. to get trying to get talent. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that was also one of the first hires we made was a recruiter. Mm-hmm.
0: And, ha- and the
1: data analyst, like you said.
0: Yep. And any on the recruiter, was there anything in particular that you were thinking as a right thing to do in order to, to uh, you know, hire effectively?
1: So it was funny because the um, recruiter still tells this story. But I basically he sat me down. I'd just come from Europe, and he had come from Google, and so he had all of this. It was still when Google was hiring based on GPA and all of this stuff. And he sat me down. He said, "Okay, so I have all this criteria." He said, "What's your criteria?" And I said, I want no assholes who can solve problems. And that's it. And he's like, well, how am I going to screen for that? I'm like, I can screen for that. (laughs) I'm like, you find me good, talented people. Like, you find me good people who have, like, raw talent, and we can figure the rest out. They don't need to necessarily have known Python. They don't necessarily need to um, have, you know, they need to have raw, good, Problem solving and coding skills, mm-hmm. um, and that has been kind of our philosophy throughout. Um, and we've had pretty good luck hiring that way. And we have a great—I feel like that's helped build a very good culture. And that was Dave's philosophy as well. He wrote a nice LinkedIn post about ah, it.
0: I remember. <laughs> uh, how do you, and how do you, as you scaled? How did you keep that culture and hiring philosophy?
1: So it's been important to us from the start, um, but we basically. Um, it goes into our screens, which is we don't ask people. We people do code on a whiteboard, you yeah. know, like the engineers do code on a whiteboard, but they can choose the language of their choice, mm-hmm. um, as an example. And then we ask everybody. We try to do, kind of, we've been trying to do the sort of unconscious bias, like mm-hmm. making sure we're 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 interviewing without um, for without trying to just take people like yourselves by asking the kind of the same set of questions Mm -hmm. and it's better to do behavioral questioning so it's much better to do ask somebody how would you solve this problem or what would you do in Mm -hmm. this situation than necessarily um, asking someone Mm -hmm. how they did something in the past Mm -hmm. Um, so i think that's been a really important thing for us in that in the interviewing
0: and and how many engineers are you now roughly
1: um we're about 150 but um, there have been two to three acquisitions that mm-hmm. have significantly added to the engineering count.
0: And when did you start doing the acquisitions?
1: Um, Dave liked doing deals. We did. <laughs> <laughs> we did um, a major deal actually in 2012, which was um, which was buying our, our largest competitor no. uh, called Zoomerang. And that was a huge thing because we had to, within nine months, deprecate their entire technology platform Mm -hmm. um, and move all the customers over to our system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was a major effort from the technology teams. um, But we do have a few of our strongest developers from that acquisition.
0: If you were to go back and call yourself, you know, be able to tell yourself before you went into that acquisition of the tech move, what would you tell yourself to do differently?
1: Um once again, not go on maternity leave the second time in the middle of it. <laughs> but besides that. Um, besides that, I would say the biggest thing was we were really set on replicating all of the features that were on their platform because we wanted to make sure all of the customers had a fantastic experience when they move over, because we were causing them to like switch brands when they had made clearly an active choice between two mm-hmm. competitors, right um, but in retrospect, you have to balance that versus opportunity cost of everything mm-hmm. we could have been doing. So I maybe would have spent, you know, there was a few features that I think that we probably didn't, didn't have to build on SurveyMonkey that weren't re- applicable enough to a large enough for the audience. But I think in general, it was, you know, we did, I was very proud of the team and we did it yeah. within nine months.
0: Yep. By the way, just, uh, you may not know this, but uh, PayPal merged with its primary competitor, a company called x.com, uh, very early in the time. X.com was running NT, right? <laughs> uh, whereas uh, PayPal was uh, uh, actually mostly C, not even Java and Solaris, some Java on that. And um, one of the things that when I think about what I um, essentially call my younger self, it's, it's be more decisive about, like, okay, this is what the new tech yes. universe is going to look like right away. Like, don't. Right. don't like, oh, we're going to kind of talk about it. and We're going to uh-huh. figure out what's best and so forth. There was just tremendous brain damage from that. As opposed yeah. to, like, nope, we're doing it this so way.
1: That <laughs> we did. Like, yes. in the first week, I was like, we're yeah. moving all the customers yeah. and we're bringing everybody over. Yes. So that, that part was yes. it was good. It was more than, okay, what Which do you do then? Set. Which feature yeah. set? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I have a question on recruit. Why Why um, is behavioral worse than asking
1: about the past? Why is behavioral better? Um, it, it creates less bias, especially around things like women and people of color who tend to have, um, basically, there's a lot of research on it. Actually, a lot of research from Stanford. <laughs> um, but is because women tell, tend to sell themselves short in what they're saying that they did. Um, and men tend to say they did more than that they did, as an example. Um, and so if you give somebody a situation of the future, which is how would you handle this situation, you tend to get actually better.
0: And then one other question is what was the most productive recruiting channel and which one was the one where you wasted the most time?
1: Most productive will always, always, always be employee referrals um if you get great mm-hmm. people in they're always going to refer great people if they like the place that you work i mm-hmm. assume you found that um, mm-hmm. you know obviously you know when you're starting from scratch you don't have employees i mean linkedin is the best place to recruit i'm not just saying that cuz i'm sitting next to Reed. um as or far as or feeling guilty <laughs> or feeling guilty that i did. um but uh, no i meant your application not not your company <laughs> but, the, but the second um, i would say as far as probably Ah oh, the worst channel um, some that's a, that's a great oh, question actually. A couple of actually. bad channels. Of bad channels. Um, you know we don't we didn't tend to find like a lot of the career fairs because a lot of times the people attending career fairs aren't the same people that like we didn't find career fairs generally very useful um except Grace Hopper one was good at the t- the women's conference but in general i don't we didn't find careers fair very, very helpful i mean in college career fairs are good like stanford but in terms of like you know other ones that are put on are generally not that good
0: so let's talk a little bit about how you also evolved the product yeah. as you were growing because you had this okay you know it starts with small number of engineers super hard coded a tech platform that basically none of the serious companies in Silicon Valley use, right? right? Uh, With already a partially global scope, but a need to go more global. And so you have to kind of do all that. You have to Mm -hmm. fix all that. You have to make it more modular. You have to bring in data. You have to essentially do, you know, kind of uh, the data also as it ties to virality and all the rest of that. But you also have to evolve the product. Mm -hmm. You have to say, okay, these are, in order to affect our scale curve, these are the kinds of things that we need to do with the product. Right. Now, one of it was low-hanging fruit. That already right. came with the, I'm gonna hire a user experience. Right. There's so much basic stuff that we fruit yep. inc- increase conversion usage. What are the others?
1: So the biggest investment that we had or the biggest, you know, strong belief we had was that over time, the sort of creation of the surveys may get commoditized, which is, you know, the creating forms, creating surveys. And there's still a lot there. Like there's advanced logic. There's all these things that people want to do. But that actually trying to create insights out of the data was where that we, we were, we wanted to innovate, wanting to help customers understand data. So we invested a lot and we continue to invest a lot in terms of our analytics which was how do you let customers easily slice and dice the data, understand trends, um, you know, and it, one of the big things we launched was comparative data, So, which takes a lot of work because you need people to use a similar question set, like so use questions from a question bank, but then look at, you know, a comparative data. You, we might get feedback about how this class was, but, you know, it, and you guys might have said us it was okay, but we don't know if it was more okay or less okay than a different class. And so how do we compare across the spectrum of other, your other Stanford classes? And that's what you need to know to understand if your class was good or bad. And so we started building out a Benchmarks product. So these are the things where we were really focused on providing the analytics to the customers.
0: Yep. And, and what were the, when you begin to think about, okay, we're going to be global, how did you begin to figure out what is the right prioritization of which key features <laughs> would unlock the scale.
1: So, um, in terms of the very, like I said, the very first and basic thing was letting them pay you. So the payments, which is, you know, obviously like integrating PayPal, integrating bank transfer. In Germany, 60% of the users pay with bank transfer. Because since World War II, people didn't get credit cards, right, as much. So like the, the payment market in all these markets is very different. So that's something just by nature that you have to just allow. So that's sort of like base building blocks. Blocks, um, and then for us, and then the, obviously the translation is like base building building blocks. What we found is that very much in product, like once you're in the product, you didn't need that much customization besides the basic things, date format, like all all the all that stuff. Um, but it was really about how you were talking about your product that needed to be localized so what types of use cases are people doing in different markets differently you know the 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 concept of collecting yeah. You know, employee feedback is very foreign in some markets. Mm. Like uh, it's not something that's done in every market, um, and so it's more about how you're talking about your customers and also how you're representing in those pages. In Japan, as an example, the number of images on a homepage I think is about three to four x that on average of <laughs> in, in a US homepage, mm. and so those are the starts to things where we had to where we have to. We've done some, and we still have more to do.
0: Do you actually make that, for example, that Japan translation? So in
1: Japan, we, we're actually doing that only now.
0: Ah, got it. Yes, that, that struck me as a very specific memory. Yeah. That was <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so uh, when you begin to think about go to market, like for example, one of the things you discovered is different markets would actually use surveys for different things. Yes. Whether it's employee satisfaction it was or in like, education. Yeah. What were some of the lessons there that unlocking those lessons actually really helped with scale?
1: So I think it's, again, it's, it, you, I mean, you kind of said it, it's really watching the metrics and yeah. understanding what people are doing. And so therefore, you're talking to them more about what they're doing because your brand awareness in these markets is tiny. Mm-hmm. And so the difference in the U.S. is we can say like, hey, create a survey, get answers. In, in other markets, we need to say like, oh, here's all of the things you can do with a survey. Here's mm-hmm. why you might want to create a survey. So you ter- suddenly turn to a lot more educational content mm-hmm. that has to be relevant for their market. So that, I mean, it's more about that lack of brand awareness.
0: Any particular countries that were surprises on the upside or downside?
1: (laughs) Um, I I wouldn't say so, like in terms of the English markets are easier. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing, obviously, where you can, which also is we started doing a lot of search engine optimization and search engine marketing per market. And so you're starting to build out content pages per market. But it's obviously easier to do that in English markets. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so even there wasn't, you know, our business was almost all U.S. when we started in 2009. Now it's about 60% U.S. and 40% international. But a chunk of that is just international English. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's very much based on market size and internet penetration. Mm-hmm. So where you start looking at the next biggest markets of Germany and, and so forth.
0: Anything that was particularly interesting? on Because, you know, one thing that most people know intuitively is how virality works. You, should, you know, the product is used or an invitation sent. Someone touches it. They may convert. There's a whole bunch of different right. analysis about getting the K factors and time series and cohort analyses and all this to do that. Uh, SEO and yes. SEM. That was also that, that was important. What, was the, what were some of the key lessons there? Because, by the way, LinkedIn, very similarly, one of the things we realized was that one of the things that members wanted was a public profile page. And so we said, okay, let's let's do a That's let's it. allow you to do a public profile right. page, let's allow that to be indexed in Google. And then that became another path by which LinkedIn was discovered. Were there similar yes. things?
1: The most similar thing is one of the big ways you build Link authority mm. is by having links all over the web. Well, SurveyMonkey has links all over the web, so mm. our link authority was great in the U.S. Mm. So we needed to create localized domains and and you know country level domains and start sending the surveys out mm. on those domains so that you can so that you start building up link authority mm. locally yep. um, and so that you start ranking in those local search engines. That's really important for local SEO. Um, and similarly, and start putting all of your logged out. Outside experience, uh, um, kind of on that to build up the local SEO. Um, so those were, but but starting to create those backlinks were very important for us.
0: Did you um, encourage uh, customers? That's a stretch, not a question, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <No>. Yeah. <laughs> I'll come back to the customer question. How do you start when you go into a new market, like a new domain? Do you do, do you do like a marketing campaign? What do you
1: what do you do to get it going? Um. So. So for us, because we already had countries in the users, sorry, in those countries, we just switched started switching the survey traffic over to those domains. But um, in markets where we had very little traffic then we were also buying the keywords to start off with so we were starting to buy some of the search traffic um, but there's but you know you you have to start figuring out by market which are the keywords that have traffic and start building out content pages on those keywords and so we also did that from a search engine optimization perspective right in terms of
0: building processes from a product perspective that circulate uh, across different
1: so we didn't have, we still don't have product and engineering globally. All of our product and engineering, um, and we have a large um, development center in Ottawa, um, which was also through an acquisition, but, um, and, but we've grown that quite significantly. But all, all the product and engineering right now we're doing is done kind of in a centralized way across the platform. Um, we do... Um, so our development methodologies don't necessarily have to change for global. Everybody does need to be able to have sort of a Pig Latin version of the application on their site, on their, um, on their code base, so that so that you can start understanding because you know on average it's like I think 1.3 length of language versus English. So you have to start just making sure you're developing and designing for international from the start. But we don't we do it centrally. I think you guys have LinkedIn as people yeah, we're
0: pretty central. It was okay. central on R and D. Yeah, we have we have offices in thirty plus countries. Right. relative to sales, account management, right. you know, customer service, these sorts of things. Okay, so um, customers. Yes, this was okay. Great. Uh, and customers. The um, uh, did you actually try to get your customers to
1: publish the
0: results of their surveys as <laughs> part of SEO?
1: So um we have the ability for customers to say I allow you to publish this mm-hmm. publicly um the problem is is that because most you know most of these use a lot of our usage is for people to try to find out feedback around mm-hmm. either like employees or patients or so mm-hmm. forth, it's not necessarily something mm-hmm. that people want to share. Yep. But what we did do is we launched a business again using our net our scale, we took the end of the survey page of people who had seen it a few times and we built out from that page a panel. So basically, we asked people if they wanted to take a survey, and if they took a survey in turn, we would give 50 cents to charity. So we used the scale of this page, which was basically a, a large marketing page, and we built out a secondary business on top of it. Um, and in that business, um, we basically, we run studies mm. and ask people questions and publish that data out. Mm. So it's like higher quality data, and that mm. does help with SEO in key terms.
0: Yep. Um. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. It just would be the kind of the classic thing where you could get actually some super high-quality results would be very interesting from an SEO perspective, yeah. but difficult to get. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think is endemic to kind of part of the thread that is Web 2.0 is data as a platform, mm-hmm. where you start thinking about what kinds of new applications you can build right. given that you have essentially a pile of data. How do you guys think about
1: that? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we absolutely think about it. I mean, it's one of the most important things that we think about. And as I was talking about, where you start building these comparative data sets, mm. I mean, this market to build benchmarks is on average tens of thousands of dollars to even mm. hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a benchmark. We offer it now for six hundred bucks or eight hundred bucks because we have this platform and we have this scale of all these users, and we're able to aggregate the data and actually and anonymize it, of course, and then and then create. An awesome benchmark, what
0: kinds of things are being benchmarked? Yeah. and so, also students may under, might understand sorry. why benchmarks are so important. So say that. Yeah.
1: Too. So um, sorry. So yes. um, so right now, employee satisfaction. We have we have net promoter score, which is how you might do customer satisfaction. We have a K through 12 parent education survey. So again, um, you know, it's and and we have an event feedback template that can get benchmarks. So it's basically. Um, where you start building enough data that's statistically significant where you can slice it and dice it by, I want. So if you think about classroom feedback, you would Stanford probably would want to look at other universities similar to them um, in order to see if Stanford was comparing it. Or within campus, you probably would maybe want to, like a CS professor may want to compare it against other CS classes. Um, we don't have enough data significance yet on classroom feedback, though. So um,
0: let's shift to management. <laughs> right. So, um, and this is not so much of a code about, you know, the difficulties with Goldie, right? <laughs> but as much as you're going to build a company for scale, Goldie hires you, Goldie mm-hmm. hires Tim, how do you build out the rest of the management? Yeah. What are the principles of that? So, you, we talked about hiring already some, but how does, like, putting in a management layer into the company?
1: So, and this is, this has been one of the most fun, but also hardest challenges you ha- we have. So, we've had. So, um, we had a very specific thing that both Dave and I believed in from a management perspective, um, a couple things. One is is that we really like to find people who had had some startup experience but also some scale experience. So if you look at Dave, he had started a company called Launch but had also been running all of Yahoo Music. I started Evite. But I had also been running, you know, 250 people at Ticketmaster. So it was like finding that people who had done both a mix of small and scale. And so um, our had a product similarly. He had kind of been at Yahoo, which was a more scaled company, and then been in a startup called TripIt. So we were, in general, trying to find people who had a little bit of that balance because we liked the culture of the small company, and we have the culture, had the culture, still somewhat have the culture of a small company. How big are um, you now? How many people? About 690. Yeah. Um, so are right at that sort of uh, actually, yep, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, heading towards the city. <laughs> it's heading towards the city. I, I know I was like, I need to sit on the other side of this class some, <laughs> um, but um but basically um but finding people who can scale up as you go is hard. And some people won't. Like, you will, you know, we had a very a fantastic guy who um, kind of was responsible for for, vari- for various things. And, you know, there came to a point where he started having to manage managers and he didn't enjoy it. Like, it wasn't fun for him. He didn't like it. Um, and he was great at the hands-on, like, um, getting stuff done, you know, managing a couple people, leading a small team. So when we were in that sort of, you know, tribe stage. He was fantastic. But then, you know, he wasn't... He didn't necessarily get to a point where he scaled to that next level. And then there's some people that have. And, like... Our general view is we really liked hiring from within. With all of our engineering managers, they've almost all except one been hired from within. Um, you know, It's been something that's been important to us culturally, but there does come to places where you actually need to bring an expert in who's done it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's finding that right balance of kind of, keeping people who, and helping them grow and, and keeping that, you know, they understand the culture of the company, they have the right motivations, along with people that are bringing that experience to the table.
0: And how do you, this is one of the things we covered a little bit, we, we introduced the whole kind of what are the challenges of beginning to, you know, scale and multi-thread your company, right. you know, kind of basically mm-hmm. Tuesday. And right. one of the things is this whole question about how much do you hire externally and how much do you come out <laughs> within, and how do you identify those people And how are you navigating it? How do you keep the people that you actually really want to keep, even though you're not promoting them into the Mm -hmm. role? What were some of the, the considerations there?
1: Yeah, I'd say that last thing is one of the hardest, if not impossible, which is when you have to layer people um, and then keeping them motivated and excited because it's very hard for somebody who's been responsible for a function or responsible for things. And um, even though it makes sense that as the company grows, your role may get smaller, and it doesn't mean you your role has actually gotten smaller. Your role has actually gotten bigger, but the scope of it has gotten smaller, but on a bigger company set. But that's very hard for people yep. in general to stomach. Although what you
0: also just revealed is that is actually, by the way, the classic language that most of the people are trying to do this. Do this like, actually, in fact, your job is bigger. Right. right? Isn't the, yes, there's one person running this, this particular right. group now, and you're not that person— but your, your job, job is actually still bigger than right. it was before.
1: Exactly. Right. but th- but And so it is, I mean, that is difficult. And there will be some people who really only enjoy that tribe stage of companies, mm-hmm. you know, or really enjoy sort of the tribe to the beginning of the village. And mm-hmm. then it's like, and there's serial people who like going through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. You know, if you know that that's what you love, that's great. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's... Um, a woman who did international at LinkedIn and did it at SurveyMonkey, yep. and you're going to hear yep. from Nirav, and she's done international yes. at, at Nextdoor. Actually, that's funny. Me,
0: yes, Mina was at LinkedIn, then Survey Monkey, Monkey, and then the Nextdoor. Door, but she is Tuesday.
1: absolutely fantastic yes. at, at driving, mm-hmm. interna- You know, setting the platform for international when you start. But then there's a point where she's like, hey, I've done it, I'm going to go to the next one. Yes. Um, and so there will be people like that who really enjoy a certain scale or size of the company, and that's fantastic. It's like figuring out what you enjoy. Um but the hardest piece is when people, you know, were running a function or, and then you need to bring people yeah. over them and that, that has that is tough.
0: The other part actually that highlights with Mina in specific is part of the arc that we've mentioned is you start with you always are hiring generalists, but how you're deploying them. Mm-hmm. The journalist early is doing everything. Mm-hmm. Then you're covering the new ground, the 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 in-between the different areas of specialization. Mm-hmm. You know, the, kind of the new entrepreneurial project, you're doing panels, you're doing, you know, benchmarking, you're doing these kinds of things. You can say, okay, do those. But you're also hiring much more specialists, mm-hmm. right? And part of what Mina is, is an internationalization specialist. Special. <laughs> it's like, I know this game,
1: yeah.
0: cold, and this is how you play it, right. and this is what you do, and this is how you come from a company that hasn't thought about it and move into a exactly. company that does, which is precisely what she is. And there been.
1: will be some people though yeah. that scale extremely well. The woman who I mentioned who started as that BI analyst, like when I said one of my fir- the first five hires, she now, yeah. she now is our VP of Growth and Analytics. Like yep. she is so there are those people wh- who can scale and grow and then there's those people who can. And that is the hard thing is cuz you obviously, you know, there are people you've worked with for a couple years, 2-3 years, like you want everybody to, to scale and grow.
0: And as you were scaling, did your sense of what Competition looked like, or what the opportunity looked like, changed.
1: Absolutely. Um, so, you know, one of the things in is that there's many factors that go on around you in terms of what the large players are doing. So, even in our case, you know, we have, um, you know, Google has a forms product, and you know, and and so I mean, it's it has you know some similarities and so you, know, you see larger players making changes and then you also see true you know, upstarts that start really specializing so you know, there is somebody that you know, has built a, a you know, really nice product around specifically around just employee engagement and they're going after just that HR space so you, know, you constantly see competition when you're a, a large general platform I mean, it's just a question of how significant is it and how much is it affecting your business and where do you want to think about M&A like we did with, with Zoom meringue, and fluid surveys.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you do any M&A that wasn't actually within your space?
1: Um, we did, like, an adjacent, like, Wufu, which was mm-hmm. a forms-based product, but um, but not, not yeah. no, not really.
0: And and no, um, you haven't set up an hires department yet? For So we
1: did do okay. so a few, sorry, we did do some yeah. of the Y Combinator, you yeah. know, didn't quite
0: yes. so, make cause, it. Yes, because actually that's another pattern <laughs> that I'm actually seeing is you said there's major acquisitions, which are right. strategic, and then there's a number of small acquisitions, which is part of how you get entrepreneurial people.
1: Absolutely, and those are great. The aquahires are great in terms of like finding because those turn out to be. We did this one acquihire and um, and the two guys are still there five years later, and they're basically running that entire audience business from product and engineering perspective. Yeah. Just amazing talent.
0: And how did you feel about like you mentioned Google Forms? How did the large players, you know, figure in? Whether it's Google or Microsoft or um, you know, obviously some of what you must do is social graph optimization as well, Given Twitter, Facebook, you know, LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think that in general it's a question of where is the right place to partner mm-hmm. as well, you know, and mm-hmm. so thinking about, you know, how do you, how do you create the right partnerships and work within their ecosystem as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And was there anything... Sorry, was the question? Go ahead. Um, yeah. Some of the aqua highs, um, how did you identify them? Because they're small companies, like no one's really heard of them.
1: Um, in What's general, yeah, the really small ones. In general, it is a pretty small valley, and so when when you have like good talent, where they're not making it, whether it's one of the Y Combinator companies or just other ones, like you'll get they'll you'll get a call into your into your like our BD M and A. Most of them came, like, of them of came through Dave. Um, Dave had a very wide, vast network.
0: Yeah, the, the usual pattern that, I'll get <laughs> to you in a second. Um, yeah. The usual pattern for that is uh, you probably have a corp dev person now. Yeah. Yes, right? But the usual pattern pre-having uh, a corp dev person who this is their daily job is that's part of the reason why you're intensely uh, focused on being connected into the Silicon Valley network. Mm-hmm. Some of that's through investors. Some of that's through, you know, key people in the company, founders, executives, et cetera. That almost all comes from some version of that. So it's like, oh, you know, Dave knows Sam Altman. Right. Sam calls Dave, <laughs> says, "Hey, there's this group <laughs> that actually really likes you, and maybe you should consider." You know, this, 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 you yeah, know, they're doing something yeah.
1: slightly similar. They're kind yeah. of passionate about surveys, like the one I yeah. mentioned. They were doing like phone polling, um, and we did another one, which was again, it was like somebody I'd worked with in 1999, like their company. So it's just as you start building your network, you'll hear about people will reach out if they enjoyed working yeah. with you. Yeah, well, or are you identifying it? it yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, we unfortunately we can ask all day at the moment. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, Taking on that point, isn't that super expensive? I mean, I kind of have no idea for the pay scale of these things, but, but you kind of hear like you mean Aqua aquahires is as, as expensive? It's a million per year or something. That that is actually the usual benchmark for that, yeah, which is a million per year. Um, <laughs> actually, in fact, well, it's expensive if you said this is the only way I'm hiring, right? Um, and do, it. do it a five engineers to pay five Oh, uh, absolutely. But by the way, it's not any five engineers, it's the right. right five engineers. And part of what you're usually doing in that case is it's five engineers who work really, really well together, who've demonstrated entrepreneurial ability, who, are, who, who can be part of the new blood of really driving something pretty serious in what you're doing. Right. And that is actually, in fact, worth it every single dot.
1: And remember, it's going to be a mix of cash and equity. So it's also equity in your current company that they are hopefully making a big impact on. Sorry, Chris, do yeah, you have a that's over
0: some time frame as well? Yeah. Uh, almost always. Yeah. Uh, minimum two years, sometimes four. Because right? you know, the, the, the whole question is, I mean, the alignment of incentives question when you get mm-hmm. to compensation uh, is actually extremely important in circumstances. like It's important all the time, but extremely important here. Mm-hmm. Did you have a question? Okay. All right. And by the way, I don't always. Okay. Um, I'm curious whether marketing um, has a tool, has some tool where you help the users to remove certain biases that they may have in their uh, survey. And also, when you actually do, you know, you have this product where you do across the industry analysis,
1: how do you remove some of these, uh, these biases? Because a similar question could be asked in many different ways. That's that's a great question. And um, by the way, why don't you restate it just to make sure? Oh, we're Oh, so the question was: um, Does Survey Monkey have anything to try to reduce bias in the questions? One of the most interesting things you'll see is if you actually ask people if they agree or disagree. In the U.S., they're going to mostly agree. Just by nature, Americans like to agree with things. I disagree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this research is also no. from Stanford. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and actually, the amount of that actually changes by market, which mm-hmm. is what's really interesting. So have you we, ever published what that percentage is? Um, we have it on a blog post, but okay. I don't remember. I
0: guess you go find that blog I, post. <laughs> um,
1: but... Um, but so, what we did is we actually built a couple things. One is we have this question bank, which helps you create the, write the questions or use the questions that are worded in the right way with the right answer options because the difference in terms of how the answer options are also worded need to be equally spaced. Um, And so we work to make sure that the questions themselves kind of help reduce bias. The other thing is we have the amount of functionality so you can randomize, right? You can randomize options. You can randomize things so that you're actually not, because people often choose the first thing as well. Um, But there's definitely things that you can do on a technological level, also post the survey to help people with respondent quality and survey quality to, like, make sure that things are good. And we are making some investments there now as well. Uh, go ahead. Uh,
0: just a quick question. Aside from Mindshare, is there anything even more like powerful network effects of the survey systems? I mean, what, like, what about it that certain smaller companies that are trying to verticals have found success? So so, so let me slightly generalize that yeah. question because there's a couple of different points. What are the competitive barriers to SurveyMonkey Absolutely. as it succeeds at scale? Is network effects one of them? And... If so, how so, and what are the other ones?
1: Great. That's. So, in terms of just in general, the one of the main sort of you know competitive barriers is going to be um, both your data. So, if you've been using the product, you start wanting to see your data over time. Um, and then the second is as we build, as we provide you the comparative data sets, that also is a, a competitive differentiator that that. Um, that most people don't have, but part of the reason why we've done acquisitions is because of of s- similar, you know, similar companies. Is because once you choose a survey product and your data starts going in there, um, and you have that data over time, the, the the your willingness to move products is very low. So when people churn out of SurveyMonkey, the main thing that they tell us why they've churned is because they don't have a need for it right now, but I'm going to be back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a huge competitive differentiator that you actually, that, that, you know, that you actually have. But it is also, you know, again, like I said, is the more you can do to provide people insights of the data, the better you are, whether it's the open-ended feedback, so trying to do natural language processing. We have a basic text analysis today, but that's another place that we're investing.
0: Uh, feel free to punt on this question if it's too sensitive, but what have you found in particular about the re-engagement Right, so like, how do you model the when you touch them? Yeah, to get the the customer who's apparently churned yep. back in. What what? So what we spend a lot of time
1: yes. on re engagement, both through um, you know emailing the customer and also through retargeting on both LinkedIn and mm-hmm. Facebook. So trying to find that customer where they are and remind them that they should be re engaging mm-hmm. to do feedback. Um, so we have very specific re engagement curves, which we don't share, but. <laughs>
0: That's what I figured. Okay. Because like, I realized like, that this would be a very sensitive yeah. barrier, which is the reason I framed um, it as only
1: what you can say. But, um, but it is a very significant portion of our business is getting people to essentially come back and reuse you. So existing customers kind of paying you again. Do you use any machine learning on that? Um, So we do use a propensity model, which Uh is using um, based on users' behavior, which is um, looking at and what types of surveys they've done and using a bunch of variables to decide when to recontact them. And similarly with um, what we should show them at the end of the survey. Yep, yep. Makes sense. Um, Oh, Question. Yeah, I would... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just uh, that, you know, if we asked for flying
0: cars, we got a number character, so I'm just... Sure and surveys. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I, I think about, like, what's working on. Is it something that a lot of people are using that's what anyone represents?
1: Yeah, so... For me, there's three re- things. The oh, sorry. Question the question was, is that is that, you know, when I first heard surveys, it didn't sound that interesting. Um, but yeah, it was like a scaled company. That was one of the things that attracted me to it. So, you know, what are the important things to think about? There's, From my mind, there's three important things to think about when you're thinking about your company, a company, whether you're starting it from scratch or you're, or you're um, going to a company. And the first is the product. So <laughs> I said that when I first heard surveys, I didn't think it was that interesting, but 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 what excited me was how all of the people were actually using the data and listening to their, whether it was their customers, their students, their parents, their patients, like the product is the most important thing in terms of you need to be excited about, especially as an engineer, we're going to spend all your time developing and building it. Um, and that is very important to me. The second is always going to be the people. Um, I mentioned Dave to you. I've mentioned him many times. He was a fantastic leader, the best, the best mentor and manager I've ever had in my career. And. Um, And but just just meeting, but having uh, people and then for me, it was also the opportunity to build my team so I could choose the people I wanted and help build that culture. That's always the second thing. And the third thing is what you are going to learn there. Um, And for me, the part that I was going to learn was, could we actually take this company that was at scale from a from a size perspective so we could A, B test and learn? But the team was small and scale it up. Um, you know, and that was the part that I hadn't done before that I was super excited about. I'd had this small company, um, Evite, that you know we we grew to to thirty when people when we sold it, and then I'd been at Ticketmaster, which was humongous. But actually, taking that company from that small size to large was what I was super excited to learn. And it's been six years and a fantastic learning experience.
0: The other thing I would add, um, which I'm certain is part of the SurveyMonkey thing, but if you begin to say. Uh, let's see. So uh, two critiques of Peter's statement, right? Um, one of them is uh, essentially that actually, in fact, uh, software is transforming a number of different industries, and so actually, in fact, the fact that you're getting a revolution in bits actually means that you're also getting a revolution in atoms, right? The second part of it is is that um, yes, in the '50s they were expecting flying cars, but they weren't expecting mobile phones, right? right? You know, it's kind of is a way of doing this now the the key thing is is that intelligence in how you operate actually massively increases productivity whether it's an individual or an organization and so part of your actual mission is trying to to whatever individual or mission how do you help them get uh, operate much more intelligently
1: yeah how do you help people make better decisions with data yeah. like that is an exciting mission and like yeah. you have to be super excited about the mission of yeah. your company if you're going to stay there for a while
0: have you ever had Tufti come talk at Edward Tufty, visual design. No, but I read the book. Yeah, you, yeah.
1: Should, you should have him come talk. <laughs>
0: that would actually be fun. Anyway. Um, oh, in the back. I just had a quick question about re-engagement again. Could you talk more about how much of the re-engagement work you do is
1: in-house and how much is, like, you rely on tooling to do that um, you said propensity modeling for? Like, is that all kind of outsourced? No, that's all in-house. All in-house. Yeah. How much of the re-engagement is as a business, as, like, a percentage of all of your customers? I i that's the piece that we don't share.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, by the way, one generalization, more or less one of the truths of any business isn't so much of a scale up or blitz scale thing is anything that's mission critical is in-house. Anything yeah, that's like, this that's is the key point. thing by which we win, if that's out of house, that's a major risk factor. And intelligent
1: management is trying to figure out how to bring it in-house. So. The major, oh, but the but
0: major sources of
1: engagement are Facebook. And- oh, you meant in terms of... Um, how much of it are you re-engaging that customer through recontacting them through email and, and re-reaching them through other channels? Well, there's like multiple pieces of infrastructure. I was kind of curious about the whole thing. So that would be one part and then the actual analysis. That's just I mean that's just literally buying advertising on Facebook or LinkedIn where you have the ability to retarget users. Um you know, X days or X weeks or months after they've churned and try and convince them to come back based on specific advertising. I mean, obviously, you see it right now with e commerce where, like, you go in overstock and then three minutes later on another site and you're like, that's the dresser I just looked at. So that's like how retargeting essentially works. So it seems like SurveyMonkey hasn't really been aggressive in penetrating the mobile space. Can you speak sure, we can talk about mobile. So, um, so, As far as the question was, has SurveyMonkey been, doesn't seem like SurveyMonkey's necessarily been aggressive about the mobile space. So um, about people taking surveys today, um, domestically it's about 35%. Internationally it's about 50% are taking it on a mobile phone. So it is extremely important that our experience is, is optimized for mobile web. Those users who are taking surveys will not be downloading our mobile app. Um, We have a mobile app that's on both Android and iOS that's been pretty successful that is mostly for creating surveys. But what most people are doing on the mobile app is they're really managing their results. They want to check their results in real time, and they want to make quick fixes and edits on typos because we've targeted our apps at existing users who are trying to do stuff as more of a complement to the to the desktop. The other thing that we also have is essentially a mobile SDK, which allows other app developers to integrate SurveyMonkey into their apps very easily. Um, and so if people want to integrate essentially, a, um, we use it as an example um, for asking you, you know, if you click feedback, if you say you had a very good experience, then we might, you know, suggest you go to the app store. And if you had a bad experience, we might try to collect more information as an example. Um, but it's it's using surveys in in app, so that's been our mobile strategy. Um, but it it is absolutely vital internationally that you're thinking, especially on that taking experience for mobile. But you're not going to get a user who is doing a non. Recurring activity to download an app so you need to ensure that your experience is fantastic on the mobile web And I don't know if you've seen the recent data, but mobile web is growing about 2x as fast as mobile apps so um, so There is no question that that has to be an important part of anything that you would build today
0: Actually a follow-on to that which I actually hadn't realized would be a good question for you and you may or may not be able to answer given I don't, I just don't know which of this stuff is confidential uh, obviously, this, in in a macro sense, there's this interesting app versus mobile web war between Apple and Google. Yes, right, because iOS is is going let's let's really make it more app. Right, Android and Google is making it let's more mobile web. Does that play out in the SurveyMonkey at all? In it plays out in the market? different markets. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So um, so as you can see, is you see like um, certain markets where iOS is much stronger, like in um US is about fifty fifty, but Japan iOS is much stronger. So where you see more iOS traction, you'll see more app downloads and where Android is stronger, you'll see like we don't see as much Android app usage, but we see we do see a ton of mobile web coming from Android. Mm. And and that and that yes. also again, it's like markets that are more Android heavy, we have had less success in downloading the app.
0: Oh, All right, next question. And uh, by the way, uh, we're now at a point where uh, feel free to just interrupt with questions. I have a bunch more, but if you have them and you the class has been entrepreneurial and asking anyway, that's cool. But just a prompt, you're you're more uh, I only have one more critical question, everything okay. else is bonus round. Okay. so if we get to it, we get to it and if we don't, we don't. Um, so part of your scale-up was getting the multi-threading, right? Of being able to work on more than one project at a time. You have the de- developer tools, you have the global billing, yeah. you have going to panels. What specifically did you do to start trying to uh, enable multi-threading on decisioning, multi-threading on, on different groups working separately but also together, right. which is one of the really key things that you begin to set up as the foundation for So. Scaling.
1: It was very much tied to the technical architecture decision we made to, to move to a service-oriented architecture. And then I believe very strongly that it's important that the teams that are working on any set of the services have an embedded team of a product leader, a user experience design leader, um, QA automation, obviously the engineering leader, and then a BI analyst who's actually looking at the data for that part. Um, you guys, I mean... If you build something, you want to understand how well it did and how well it's doing. And so it's important that those metrics get fed back. So um, we basically structured the team so that you have these sort of teams that are working on different services or different parts of the app. Um, and then there's standardization of APIs. And so how you're talking to the services tier is consistent. So um, and so that becomes important as you start wanting to add new features or new products um, on top is that figuring out what are the guardrails you want to give each team and what is the freedom you want to give each team. And so in our case, like the guardrails we gave was 100% code review on the services tier, 100% or um, I think is eighty to one hundred percent unit test coverage, and then um, API standards. But we didn't give um, a basic, and that you had to, and um, that we wanted you to release at least once a week. But you can release more. Or you can release um, You can release more if you wanted to. But basically the thought process was I didn't actually care if people wanted to do three-week sprints or two-week sprints or they wanted to do kind of semi-waterfall or agile or whatever. It was like commit to your quarterly roadmap, figure out what you actually want to get done, and give as much freedoms to the team as possible. Um, But make sure that they're getting the metrics back of how things actually did when it launches. So I think it's important to do a – twenty four hour a seven day and a twenty eight day readout of everything that that goes live, um, but I feel like that creating that embedded team model like if you ask someone at sort of monkey engineering like they will more identify what regardless of their product or QA or whatever they'll more identify as a gorilla, which is our analyzed team versus like I'm an engineer, and I think that that's actually good mm-hmm. okay. So it seems like SurveyMonkey is pretty similar to Eventbrite in
0: terms of <laughs> a product for organizers to then yep. distribute their own way. How do you guys think about product development given that there is two sorts of like
1: uh, user bases, like the people creators and the respondents. Yeah. Um, so again, be- whenever you're thinking about Eventbrite, it's the same, um, which is whenever you're thinking about the fact that that respondent might become your creator. Like you have to make sure that that respondent experience is just like fantastic, that they can take the survey really well, that it's optimized for mobile, that that then when they land, when they finish, is a good experience. But if you think about, and that's you know, 80% of our traffic is on the taking side, but obviously our customer, the one who's paying us, the one who's putting their faith in us to actually send their survey out to the customers is the creator. So in terms of from a resourcing perspective, we spend most of our resources on the survey creation side because you, you need to get that person through the hurdle of having the confidence to like put their name out there with a bunch of questions to a bunch of other people. Um, and that, that that is the customer who, essentially, you know, in the end, that we're trying to upgrade to get into a paying customer base. So I don't know if you know that answers, but you have to balance your resources, but you have to think about, you know, kind of where that entry and starting point is of that life cycle. Do
0: you guys spend a lot of effort on getting the respondents to become part of like not just like the ecosystem, but also take other people's surveys or your own?
1: So. When we launched the panel business, then you have the ability to sign up to take surveys. And every time you take a survey, you get 50 cents to charity. Um, And then a creator can buy respondents. Um, So that was a new business that we launched in 2013, using kind of leveraging the fact that we have all these users who want to not only necessarily send surveys to people they know, but to potential customers to do brand research or market research. Um, And so we leveraged the fact that we have kind of this large traffic to build out this panel. Um, And we decided to do 50 cents for charity of choice versus money because we wanted to make sure people weren't BSing it. Like we wanted to make sure people were answering and to make sure they're answering with very high quality. It was really important that, um, you know, no one's going to like BS a survey to give 50 cents to, you know, the Teach for America. Um, So that's why we built it out that way. I don't know if that completely answers your question, but.
0: We'll just go down the road so no, of no, you first. So you mentioned at some point that as you scale the organization, you to identify people who can scale and grow into the bigger roles, which is a very observable viewpoint. Like, if I think as a game,
1: what do I need to do to become a person? <laughs> so um, that's a great question. Um, I would. S- oh, sorry. The question <laughs> was is that, you know, as a manager, you're trying to figure out you know, who can essentially scale and grow. But as a person in the chair, how do I make sure that I'm scaling and growing? Um, And, you know, I would say, again, um, a lot of it is, you know, is figuring out if you actually enjoy people management as it scales and grows. It's not for everybody. Like I, we put all of our engineers through this engineering management screen and we have a very nice, a, you know, tech track for people too. Um, and so um, and so you can either scale through a tech track way and scaling the tech track way and growing that is like, is, you know, about gaining knowledge, taking more ownership of more services, um, showing mentoring other people on the team. And, um, mm-hmm. And you know, kind of being able to take tech leadership, but then there's also the people management track, and you have to really decide if it's something that you enjoy. But if you're in that role, like you've brought somebody in to lead, um, then there's a question. If is the more, if you think about it, if you're managing five people, then you're having a 20% impact on like five different things, right? When you're suddenly managing like 50 people, you're having a 2% impact on 50 different things, like whether, and so you have to be. Excited and feel excited about not necessarily like get like there's something so satisfying to like coding and pushing it to production and having it work. Like you have to feel satisfaction over influencing other people. And so part of it is like, Making sure that that's something you're excited about. And being a good people manager is about removing roadblocks for your team, making sure that they're getting what they need to get their job done, um, and then making sure that you're communicating to them about what's like the most important things that you're working on. And so like that's not enjoyable to everybody. You know, so I think that that also becomes the question is also starting to be honest with yourself of, like, what you enjoy, and then depending upon that, like, working on those skills. And I'm sure you can add to that.
0: Yeah, although we'll, we'll optimize the questions. And, oh. Uh, For targeting panels, uh, do you have any way to collect it from these people if, um, if I ask you to target a certain demographic in a yes. specific country that has certain characteristics?
1: Yeah. Um, so the question was, with the panel, can you um, target based on specific demographic data? So the answer is yes, and we collect it through a survey. So we ask them, <laughs> which is actually the best way to collect the data. And then as a buyer, you can choose different demographics. So if you're trying to launch a product um, for um, you know, young women, um, you can target young women and then ask them.
0: Uh, here Uh, with the 2016 election coming up, do you have any plans with going entering like the polling space? Surveying points very similar.
1: I don't have you, did you see me? Sorry, his question was if we have anything in entering the polling space, but did you watch Meet the Press? Okay. Okay. Oh, well, we, we are polling, yeah. So we um, have launched. We just, Mark Blumenthal signed yesterday, joined our survey monkey yesterday. It was running Pollster.com. We have John Cohen, um, who was the head of the Washington Post polling. We were the only company to correctly call the UK election. It's, um, so we basically used the end of the survey page, and as well as our panel, and we asked a bunch of questions. And if you think about it, we our sample size is so much larger than calling people on the phone. Um, so yeah, um, and so now we're um, we have a partnership with NBC, um, and um, and to 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 poll on certain topics, um, and so it's something that again somebody asked the question around you know, how, you know how do you think about global um, with in terms of one of the things is like the brand awareness side. So if you start thinking about you know election and polling, if we can show and you know that the data is accurate and that our sample is good it helps obviously with that audience panel but it also vastly helps with building that brand awareness and that confidence that SurveyMonkey is not just this tool but actually is a data business over time Um, and building that confidence as you know what is your kind of next step um, from an innovation perspective and the polling is an important piece for that for us. It's really cool, though. You should look at the UK article. It's like pretty exciting. <laughs> All right,
0: Chris, oh, no. um, you were saying about there's seven day, twenty eight day readouts. What
1: were those? Oh, sorry. I, I said there's important to do seven day and twenty eight day readouts with every feature, like or everything that gets built. It's important to say how it did. And there's some features you built that didn't work, and that's okay. Like then you have to get rid of it because just adding clutter for the customers like not a good idea. Um, I mean, yeah. taking a step back uh, to when you first joined SurveyMonkey it seems like there was a lot that needed to get done on all aspects of the company one thing that Reid talked about earlier on in this class is figuring out which fires to let burn and which ones to put mm-hmm. out How did you? Okay. so the question was there seemed to be a lot to get done, how do we decide which fires to burn, which ones to put out um, I'd say we were in a very advantageous position and that the business was doing really well um, but um, so we could take an approach to say let's break up the problems and I think that is from my perspective the most important thing is like what are the problems that are the most important which problems can you let, let go for longer and so a lot of it was was collecting customer feedback and understanding which parts of the application whether it was through a combination of user testing a combination of looking at the quantitative data of what people were doing on the site as well as the all of the customer feedback and surveys of our own customers is understanding what were the the pieces that the customers were telling us were the most broken. And so again, like globally, we saw customers couldn't pay. Like that was a huge problem because people wanted to use the service. Then we saw that people couldn't understand the data. So focusing on analytics was the most important. People actually loved the way that you could create the survey. Like the biggest feedback was, oh, this is so easy to use. It's so easy to use to get my survey started. That's the last thing we attacked. So, it was very much looking at both qualitative and quantitative from our customers to drive what were those fires. I have a question about earlier
0: in the day. So, yeah. um, most people, when they're starting out, are advised to stay in this area,
1: especially because the networking network so is very important. Um, but you said you spent a couple of years abroad and it was an amazing experience. So yeah. About how that affected your career trajectory? Or- sure. Um, so the question was that you know a lot of people recommend staying here locally, and then I made the decision to move to London. And how did that affect my career? So, um, so I did start here. We started Evite in um, in kind of our our uh, dorm actually here at Stanford, um, and then um, and stayed here for a number of years. Evite sold to a media conglomerate called IAC, which owned Ticketmaster, Citysearch, Match. Um, Expedia at the time. Um, and so um, that was down in L.A. So I was in L.A. for for a couple years. But for me, it was that, you know, I really wanted to gain that international experience. Um, and... Felt and also just on a personal level, really wanted to live abroad. And so, you know, maybe from a career decision, it may have been better to come back to the Valley. It was 2005 and, and you know, join, join a startup here. But, you know, you have to balance, I think, what you really enjoy personally and professionally. And, um, and you know, on a personal level, uh, it was the best decision I ever made. I met my husband, so. <laughs> you mentioned the first hire you had was user experience most people don't find surveys extremely fun or exciting to do, right? So, what kind of changes
0: did you have to do to make it so that you know it's as pleasant as?
1: Um, So the question was, you know, surveys, people don't necessarily find surveys fun. So how did you make it as pleasant as possible given that we hired the user experience designer? So again, a lot of it was around the creator, was that how do we get that person right from that logged out experience, whether they were coming in through search or they were coming in through having taken a survey and drive that person into the funnel? So how do we even, you know, onboard them? Like, what are you trying to do? Um, And trying to help that person along that experience, but as I said, the biggest, biggest thing we focused on with the user experience design perspective was helping people understand their data. The more people used our product to understand the data, that that lowers our our churn, so improves our engagement and retention. Um, so that is a very hard problem.
0: Given yeah, that you like converted the team, the, the technical team from like two, or three engineers to to what it is now, what were some of the highest leverage like organizational strategies that you
1: used at the beginning when you got there? Um, so, the question was, is given that we moved the team from 2 to 150, what were some of the, stra- like, organizational strategies we used to scale, basically?
0: That were very high leverage. So, like, something that took minimal effort for, like, a very big,
1: okay. um, effect. Well, that. It was like Goldberg hiring you. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing with hiring that is a silver bullet. I mean, I I just like you have to slog through hiring each person, getting them onboarded. I would say one of the things that had the biggest bang for the buck was onboarding is like getting people onboarded correctly so they understand the mission of the company and understood what we were trying to accomplish, where we were going from a vision perspective. Um is one of the most important things things that you know you can do to get people kick started when they're there structurally, um, and then I would say the other thing that we really like to do was um, is that we always like to have there has to be some cadence that everybody's agreeing to that the business should operate. In our case, we decided on quarterly, and so every quarter it was what are we going to get done this quarter? And no matter whether we were two people or 150 people, like we still keep that cadence where everybody says this is what we're going to get done in the quarter. And I think that starting to build that in from the beginning is actually pretty important because then people get used to that sort of rhythm of the business and that helps the organization sort of know what to expect in some time period. And what you you can do goes from this to this, but it's still the fact that your communication is. So every quarter I get the entire team together. and we quickly go through key things we did last quarter and like great things coming up. So
0: I'm going to ask the last question yes. since we're actually over time, but oh. I think it's still worth asking. Uh, you have a phone line to call yourself, your younger self, six years ago.
1: Oh, at the beginning of survey, Mikey. Yes.
0: What's the one thing or two things you would tell yourself to do differently?
1: Okay. Um, so...
0: I know, I saved a real fun yeah, one. Yeah, I know.
1: Last. So what would I tell myself to do differently? Um, So, I would say, and this is a very technical thing, I would say the biggest thing we didn't do fast enough was improve our deployment systems. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, and I survey my team every single quarter. And it just, as the team started to scale and grow, it was the thing that was coming back in the survey the most. Um, which was make sure that you that like for us to get our code from keyboard to production was just too long, um, and so we should have just automated all of the deployment systems right from the start. So I would say that's one of the things that caused way too much engineer frustration that I should have dealt with at the beginning. Um, the only thing I also have to say is obviously I wish I, you know I think I did a pretty good job, but ch- cherished Dave even more than I did. Yeah, of course. <laughs>
0: All right, well, let's thank Selena for spending her time with
1: us. Thank, you. thank you.